welcome to the Theology Podcast, and we are back online. Our last four shows uh, were live shows, and it was great to to be reminded that uh, Glenn and Tom are not merely talking heads on my computer. They actually have are, are physical and have bodies and occupy space and time. And uh, I do too, but we are separated by space. I am here in uh, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, just to introduce myself, uh, I'm C.R. Wiley. I am a pastor. I've been a college professor. I've been a real estate investor. I've been a building contractor. And I write books. And I'm working on a book that Glenn's wife has been bugging me for years <laughs> to get done. And I am in the last few days of wrapping it up. Uh, so anyway, Lynn, if you're there and listening, be encouraged. At that point, when, I, when I'm done, I'm turning it over to the publisher and then you can bug them because it'll be out of my hands. In there. You do know, though, that it's a trilogy, and this is only book two. <laughs> yeah, and and here's here's a nice thought. There's another cliffhanger. <laughs> anyway, that's enough about me. So, so, Chris, do you practice the evil laugh? I do. I do. It's, it's, actually, while I'm writing the book, I, I'm laughing maniacally. <laughs> anyway, so it's Tom's day. So why don't we wait on Tom? Why don't you introduce yourself, Glenn, and then we'll go to Tom. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a retired professor or professor emeritus of history from Central Connecticut State University, Ooh. senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and new thing, uh, effective September 1st, I am going to be working in Reflections Ministries, which is the organization headed by Ken Boa. Yeah. And we're really working on a title for exactly what it is that I'm going to do, but it's uh, research, writing, teaching, some editing, things like that. And uh, one suggestion was, um, well, we, if we uh, refer to Ken as the Grand Poobah, maybe I would be the Petty Poobah. The uh, <laughs> advantage that it alliterates. Nice, so, nice. But anyway, I will be working with Ken effective September 1. Well, that's great. We'll say hi to Ken. Ken's a friend of the show. We've had him on. And uh, it's great to see that all developing. Anyway, uh, Tom, tell us about yourself and then uh, get us right into the subject of the day. Okay, Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist. I teach uh, both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and a few other places. And I am writing this summer, and I will right. be unpacking as it takes fuller shape uh, what's going on. But it's, it's exciting from my end. I've been able to fuse a few things and and start um, thinking through something I've been thinking about for a long time. So more on that as we, we get closer. Um, so topic of the day, um, this is part three of uh, our uh, of a, po a podcast trilogy uh, on meaning and history. Uh, we've been floating around this idea a lot and then coming at it from a lot of different angles. Um, and, and the reason I even picked the topic is because I think it's sometimes taken for granted that the way in which we, we comprehend history, um, providence, um, and, and meaning um, oftentimes is, is a hodgepodge of different currents and forces and ideas. Um, and then we, we find ourselves, especially in the church, not knowing sometimes even how to properly engage um, a, a period of time in which the church's way of thinking about scripture and history is at fundamental odds with everything else in the culture, and increasingly the church is adopting a lot of the ideas of the culture. And so... Yeah, um, yeah to this point, mm -hmm. we had a young woman who's working on her PhD, I think, uh, right? Yes. Us, and I saw you responded to her, Tom. And uh, yes. she sounds like a very intelligent young woman, and she uh, was... Uh, her remark, uh, if I remember correctly, is, you know... Uh, Kind of the imminent frame is just completely taken for granted, and the stuff that we're talking about, you know, is yes. stuff that she's not had anybody talk to her about before. Um, and I don't know where yeah. she's doing her work. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it looked. I mean, I don't want to give away too much on on, on her behalf, but I mean, it, it looked like a place at which <laughs> she should have been getting some uh, significant <laughs> uh, some significant Christian uh, input, at least from the uh, the Catholic tradition, and. Um, and, and But one of the things I think that was remarkable is that she had an antenna 
for how this was impacting the particular field of, of international relations in particular. Um, and this is something a long time ago I was involved with during my student uh, doctoral days with, uh, I was uh, a good friend of mine, Peter Petkoff, developed the Oxford Society of Law and Religion in which the, uh, the Adonovans, uh, Oliver Adonovan and his wife, Joan Lockwood, were a big part of in those early days. And they were really dealing and grappling with this stuff, in particular with the, with the Reformation contribution. Um, I think Bonds of Imperfection was one of the works that, that they put out together right around that time. Um, and, 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 but, but this is, you know, I think that's an area, as, as I was telling her, that it's just, I mean, I wouldn't even know where to begin in terms of resources for that. But I did find uh, one in which, I'll have to get the title, maybe our audience would be interested, in which um, it traced, in particular, nominalism and its huge impact on the way in which Christians actually developed a lot of their modernist-leaning approaches to international relations. And so they would be curious to kind of see what, where people go with engaging that from a more comprehensive Christian view of transcendence and meaning. Yeah, yeah. good stuff. Uh, and one thing that I would throw in as a historian, um, I think as a Christian historian, we under, I would say we need to understand the fact that um, God is sovereign and is working out his will through all the events that occur. But because as a finite human being, I don't have access to the mind of God at that level. Um, God works primarily through secondary causes. And as a historian, it's my job to understand the secondary causes. Right. Getting behind that to the inscrutable will of God and his purposes is kind of a different field. Um, yeah. That, that, well, that, yeah, that's, that sort that's, of that's, <laughs> work with. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction, I, and I probably should have made it even the first episode. I'm not talking, when I'm talking about history and meaning, I'm not really talking about the practice of doing historical research in particular. Um, because what, I'm, what, what goes on there or should go on there is actually, you know, it, you know and this is big debate in, in the area of his, history and hit, um, history of philosophy, philosophy of history, is exactly how do we approach this? Do we import all our biases? Do we try to be detached? I mean, those are, those are typical debates that go on in just about every field of inquiry now. But, but you're exactly right. Um, there are certain things, um, secondary causes, um, facts, and things like that, that are going to have kind of the, the preponderance of the focus it's then when we move from that to interpreting that history and then moving into interpreting the significance of that history. So we're, this is where we're kind of shading the area of fact and value at this point. And so, for example, in, in you know, classical approaches to reading the scripture, I'm talking patristics and, and medievals, look very different in their approach to reading the historical dimensions than, say, someone influenced by, you know, um, Schweitzer or Strauss um, or, or um, you know, um, Spinoza um, in these different figures. And so they have contributions to make, um, but a lot of time we, we very impact by these later figures um, have lost any touch with those those earlier figures, thinking they're just outmoded and outdated and didn't understand the meaning of history in any significant way. You well, it, 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 the, it, the reason why that gets particularly ironic is because these were people in, who lived in a world in which everything was understood as having meaning. Yeah. And since they were used to looking at the world around them and finding meaning in even the smallest things, why would you expect them to do otherwise when they studied history? Of course they're going to yeah. find meaning in history. We're yeah. the ones who actually have abandoned the idea that history does have any meaning. In a lot yeah. of ways, buying into Mark Twain, it's just one damn thing after another. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In that kind yeah, of I, natural... <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Well, I, you know... Um, I think sometimes when people criticize uh, thinkers uh, from, antiqu from antiquity or from the, from the uh, medieval world, they, uh, they more or less uh, do so with the 
the, the kind of the, the presupposition that these people uh, are um, obvious, you know, in their minds, obviously reading meaning into things, and that yeah. essentially uh, things don't have meaning, and that you can't really rely on them even for factual data. Uh, when they when they talk about when you know something happens, they can't they they just um, uh, are just kind of so um, I guess caught up in their theology or philosophy that even the facts get muddied. But I, I'm, I'm actually that's right that's right. I'm actually reading, working my way uh, again through Augustine's City of God. And if you recall, I mean, like the first three books are nothing but history. You know, he's recounting mm-hmm. events and um, he's actually uh, thinking uh, about the meaning of, of, of these events. But he's doing so in the, in the sense that uh, um, he's, he's using these terrible catastrophes and these wars uh, from Rome's past to demonstrate that the gods that they worship didn't do anything for them. And so <laughs> since, since that's the case, why blame the Christians for the sack of Rome by the Visigoths? You know, you yeah. guys have had, Rome has been sacked plenty of times <laughs> and you yeah. never, yeah. you never had us to blame. <laughs> you only had, <laughs> but, but the, but the, I think that the interesting thing is, is there's a lot of great um, information about yeah. Roman history right there in those first three books. Now, of course, he's quoting Livy and Cicero and others. But that's the thing that's also interesting to me as I'm, as I'm looking at, uh, you know, uh, Augustine doing his, uh, his work, he, and he's quoting these pagan authors. These pagan authors are just as, um, I guess, critical of, uh, you know, when it comes to Rome's past as uh, any modern uh, historian would be. I mean, they're, they're, they're pointing out the moral failures of certain leaders, the sort of the, yeah. the, the secondary causes that led to these events, you know, all this kind of yeah. stuff. So the, the ancients yeah. were able to work at that level too. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's one of the things and I, it, you know, that, that we've been kind of unpacking. And then, then we talked about the way in which Christianity kind of introduces this linear vision, if you will, of, of history. It's not sim- simple a cycle of recurring events. And again, this is, uh, this is a large-scale assumption. This, is, this shouldn't be affecting every historian's research, per se. But like you say, someone can, can note facts and things that happened without having this larger providential frame, if you will, um, of, of meaning in which you start to, like Augustine starts to read these particular things. But I think one of the things we noted was, is there, there is in this, this introduction of Christianity is that history is going somewhere that purposes are moving towards fulfillment or, or, or judgment. Um, natures are going to reach their culmination in the redemptive work of Christ. And of course the, the second coming in its fullness. Um, and so things, Things are not just going to be a continuous pattern, but they are actually going to move to completion. And so in the Old Testament figure of prefigurement and fulfillment, we have, again, a certain kind of foretaste and consummation. This is kind of a Christian vision uh, of things. And so you do have starting to roll into the, the mindset of the world from Christianity, this notion that there can be history moving there's a telos, and their history is moving towards something. And so the, the, the pursuits of what Christians do in terms of the glory of God and love of their neighbor ha- have significance towards this culmination and, of course, things thereafter in some way. And, and so what we do as historical agents starts to take on significance, too, in a way that we're not just, just uh, ideas um, uh, you know, instantiations of ideas, which really are just like everything else, but we actually have, with our gifts and endowments, something that's a part of this, you know, as they use, grand drama. Um, and, and so a lot of things change in that are introduced with Christianity, the dignity and meaning of what we do. You know, Reformation brings it up with, like, vocation, right? I mean, how, how else would your vocation matter if, if you weren't really part of this, this interactive drama, um, and, and so that, that became kind of very significant. Well, then we started to talk about the modern world in which 
a lot of those things that Christianity brought um, were repeated and continued, but they were radically altered. And that's when we were talking about when the Christian vision of transcendence became, became eclipsed and, and another version came in, an imminence and, and the now and, and, and kind of um, really a fusion of primary and secondary causes into the same level. I mean, that's Spinoza, right? Um, then, then the naturalistic, um, imminent, secular, if you will, interpretation of history now as somewhat linear uh, with, from Christianity, but without the Christian God, Christian view of transcendence and everything else. So you have, you know, you have variations. Uh, what is a secular view of uh, liberal view of moral progress in society? But a taking of Christianity, moving somewhere, moving towards a telos, um, but for them it's undefined, right? They don't have the created order to measure it by, whether things are consistent with it or not. So it's just change for change's sake <laughs> or or our present consciousness becomes kind of the, the measure for whether or not, you know, we're, we're on the right yeah. side of things. Right. <laughs> you know, the, the interesting thing, Oz Guinness uh, talked about this particularly, the similar idea in connection with vocation. And he said that there, that there is a Catholic heresy about vocation, that the only things that are truly vocations are calling to the priesthood or to yes. become a nun. Um, but he says there's a Protestant heresy that comes from, from the doctrine of calling as well. And that's the thing that makes your secular calling absolute. Yeah. This is what leads to young people living for their job, um, you know, sacrificing family, sacrificing everything else for their career. Yes. Um, that yes. is a Protestant heresy on calling. And the difference between the two is, I suppose, the Catholic heresy overemphasizes the transcendent frame. The Protestant heresy throws everything into the imminent. Yes. Yeah, this, 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 yeah. this is Oz who said that? Yeah. Do you remember how long, ago, how long ago he said that? Because it seems very relevant to the um, moment we're it, in. It's, I'm guessing maybe 10 years ago. It's in a book called The Call. Oh, I remember that <laughs> book. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, actually, it's uh, I'm, my my um, uh, assistants over here are mouthing. It's older than that. Um, so, um, yeah. Well, you 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 come across this particular heresy uh, in coastal uh, cities, where you know believers uh, looking to sort of justify their total commitment to their careers will refer yeah. to them as kind of their vocations in the sense that you just described, Glenn. And that's why they can't get married, and that's why they, you know, are working, you know, twelve to fourteen hours a day, and that's why they don't they don't ever leave the office is because they really do think of this as the kingdom of God. You know, this is their yes. way of contributing to the kingdom of God. And and these these are ways in which, and this is something I was after with the uh, I think the last show. These are ways in which the 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 good thing Christianity introduced when it gets ripped out of its proper theological setting. And it gets unleashed within a new metaphysic and theology. Even if it's subtle, it starts to introduce things that, you know, as they continue down the, the altered path, they end up creating these kind of heresies. That's what they are. They're, they're Christian, you know, they're, they're turning. They're taking something Christian and turning with it. Um, and, and so, yeah, the, you, you see this. And so what you have is a church filled with, um, a, a completely um, imminent frame view of the kingdom, <laughs> um, and and so and so yeah. They, and, 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 and wouldn't and wouldn't we say, Tom, that this is maybe contributing even to the woke phenomenon? In other words, if we think about yeah. justice as having to yeah. be uh, realized uh, perfectly now, uh, yeah. then we can justify all kinds of injustice in its name. Whereas yes. if yeah. we have a sense that uh, justice is always going to be uh, approximate uh, in our world, we're going to be, we, we should strive to get as close to the ideal as possible, but it'll never be perfectly realized because we can't sort out the wheat from the chaff, the weed from the wheat. Uh, you know, it's just not, not possible. Yeah. 
Yes, I, I think that's exactly right. And I, I'm going there. So let me kind of maybe back to do a couple steps back. Then we can kind of get back to that point because I think, you know, this is something we are currently dealing with. Um, so the next step is the emancipatory histories. How in the world do we get these notions of history, especially in, se- in a secular time and in an imminent frame, that history is dynamic, alive, it has a telos, if you will, and, and, and you are, your aim is to be part of that process of bringing about, if you will, this a utopia or liberation or emancipation. Now, again, let's back up. Christianity introduces a linear view of history and a redemptive view, one in which there is genuine liberation from, from idolatry and all that goes with it, and the, you know, the loves being malformed and, and the like. So carry those things over, baptize them not into Christ, but into a secular frame or imminent frame. You still have liberation, redemption. You still have these things, but they take on a secular, this worldly um, d- dimension, and they're ripped out of divine action, um, which is sort of a, a, a transcendent act in time, to God all of a sudden becoming dynamic within history, becoming a, basically a bigger agent within history in which when we align with, through our historical action, we are realizing the kingdom of God, the utopia, or the like. Now, there's a long way to get to that, and I don't want to trace all of that, but one, I think a couple steps are worth noting. German idealism in particular played a large role. Um, the Germans Kant, again, you the Germans. The, those, those. It's, always, it's, it's always the Germans. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, th- I think we can actually push it back to Rousseau, but we won't go there. Yeah, French, that's, too. That's, French and that's the Germans. Right. Yeah, that 24% of French German in me, I've got to kind of... <laughs> but the... Um, but I, uh, but yeah. Uh, so what you had going on, especially with German idealism, was this: um, you had Kant, of course. We talked about Kant, who divides kind of the thing, knowing reality as it is in itself, versus our, um, if you know, our receiving the phenomena. So for for Kant, you can't really know if there is a teleological order out there. All you can know is what impresses itself on you and what your consciousness and categories of thinking put back on the world. So we are now removed from any kind of direct encounter with, with the world. And now, we're, now, you know, human consciousness and the structures of our thought are kind of everything. So meaning now is something we have a share in basically generating or creating or producing, right? Um, so no yeah. longer is it, is it a, a field of, of agents in which we truly are objectively engaged, but now we are all radically subjectively engaged and our subjective side is doing a lot more work um, with, with Immanuel Kant now. Well, but, before yeah. you jump ahead, I think that it would be good to help uh, the folks out in, the, mm-hmm. in podcast land uh, kind of get a little uh, sort of uh, some handles on what you just talked about, Tom, because okay. one of the big things that I remember I had to uh, sort of um, grasp uh, to, to understand modern philosophy was the paradox of uh, its quest for objective knowledge and its retreat into the subjective at the same time. There's this kind of weird dynamic. So like when we think about Kant, there there are a lot of folks out there who would think of Kant as being the champion of reason and uh, a champion of of objective reality. What you just described is something that I think uh, most folks are unaware of, and that is Kant is actually one of the kind of the villains uh, in yeah. terms of the, the, the subjective turn. So, so one of the ways I remember helping my, uh, my students understand this when I was teaching philosophy is uh, for Kant, you've got all of this sense, sense data, which is yeah. just kind of bombarding uh, our consciousnesses. Right. There's yeah. no sort of like form that is, is sort yeah. of adhering and giving mm-hmm. those realities outside our heads uh, meaning and uh, a kind of a status, a status, a status that we could have could apprehend. Instead, we just have all yeah. this data flowing in it and through yeah. our eyes and ears and so forth. And our minds work as sort of like a sorting machine. So, like, I remember when I was uh, 
I was a, a waiter for a time and I saw, uh, you know, this was back in the day when people actually would pay with cash. <laughs> so you, you'd get, you'd get some dollar bills and some coins and things like that. And then we had this corn coin sorters. I don't know if you've ever seen these. They, they're like just, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, it's just gravity and you pour your change in the top yeah. and then it, and then the, the, the way the corn sorter is set up, everything kind of just falls, sort in of its place. falls into place, right? That's the human mind, according to Kant. The human mind is like a coin sorting machine. So it's your mind that is bringing the meaning to the data. See, yeah. this is what a lot of folks don't get. So yeah. um, what that means then is that we can't get out of our heads. In other words, Kant... Yeah is as subjective as you get, but there's a kind of inner subjectivity because he believes that we all have the same coin sorting machine. <laughs> well, 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 that's right. I mean, this is, this is his, this is a big set of terms. You know, this is his theory of, of kind of transcendental unity of apperception. I mean, that's the whole point of that is that there is a transcendental consciousness, if you will, that we all share in and that unifies our, 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 our categories of thought so that when we interpret things that mean we can't have rational um, debate and discourse because we all have the same kind of rational functions grounded in that transcendent unity of apprehension. And that's what postmodernism yeah, and that's what postmodernism has attacked and undermined. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, um, I'm going to pull us back to the 17th century. His the roots of these ideas go back to John Locke. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, that's you true. Locke, with the tabula rasa. Locke, yep. Yeah. Locke yeah. argued that we were born as blank slates, tabula rasa. We accumulate sensory experience, and our mind sorts them out, mm -hmm. um, yeah. organizes them, and so on. There are no intrinsic structures in the human mind, according to Locke. Now, that's where Kant differs from him because you have this yeah. transcendental sorting machine. Right. Um, yes. but, um, but the basic root is uh, the tabula rasa and accumulated sense perception. Right. That, that's right. And so what happens in a weird way is kind of th those things get fused together because it becomes all imminent like Locke, if you will, other than his kind of uh, his psychological, the soul is basically a psychological bundle or something with, with Locke. But what you, what you end up having with, with is, is that the, you have kept the, the human contribution to things through their consciousness of, of meaning. Um, but that starts to move away from the transcendent to the imminent in, in, in due time. And so what, what basically Hegel is, I guess, the next best step here. Because what Hegel says is, well, you know, when Kant says there is this, this a meaning that is, is out there, we have no access to other than the sense data, and that's the phenomena um, that we experience, and then the, the we are interacting with the phenomena, and that's all we can know. Um, Hegel basically says, why not just erase the thing in itself and move back to Aristotle where our consciousness actually engaged with the phenomena is the whole of reality? Why, 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 why talk about this thing we don't have access to? If we don't have access to it, it really isn't isn't uh, anything that we're, we're dealing with. So that's where you have this next step in German idealism with Fichte and some of these other figures where basically human self-consciousness, human consciousness um, and its experience of things is really the whole grid. And so this gets read up transcendentally is that there is basically a, this is German idealism, there is a self-consciousness that is really reality. So this is not materialism, this is idealism that, the, the, the stuff that everything is is self-consciousness, and we are manifestations of that. And so we, participating in it, are the creators and generators of meaning in finite form as modeled on that infinite self-consciousness that is behind everything, right? Now we have mind <laughs> that is everything, if you will. So now we have also mind thinking which means that, that, that there is a telos and meaning in history, but the only way we have access to it is not through scripture and natural revelation, but it's through our own development of thought and engagement with other ideals. Now, there are some very messy pictures here because this isn't Aristotle's way of thinking in terms of old dialectic. This is clashing dialectic. This is where I have a thought in my society has thoughts we share in a certain kind of part of self-consciousness. 
But self-consciousness is not perfect and absolute, it's unfolding. So the divine mind in this view, if you will, is not an absolute God like Christianity, but is a God that is becoming through thinking out his thoughts and them coming to life. God's actualizing himself through thinking, right? And so God thinks the USA, if you will, and then God thinks Russia, if you will. I'm thinking the old, old Russia. And these two clash, and with this clash, there is a new synthesis, a new bursting of meaning. And so what was for me, USA, what was for Russia, Russia were, were, the, were the final thing, turns out to be that they weren't. And so everything is dynamic. All meaning is relative and conditioned by the absolute realizing itself at that moment. And so we're, we're moving in a whole different direction than Christianity, yet we're running with very Christian and even some Aristotelian things ripped from their old metaphysics. So let's just kind of jump ahead. Emancipatory viewpoints um, of, of history um, start to develop because we start to see that human beings are agents of meaning. And so, and there is this belief that these are heading towards a, a, an actualization or full realization of the divine. This is what becomes utopia eventually. God finally will figure it out and realize himself and everything will be this, this reach this equilibrium. Marx comes along and says, everything isn't mine, it's the other way around. So all of our structures of consciousness and categories of thought are not the generators of the meaning. They're expressing the socioeconomic situation, the material conditions. They have been eternalized, and now they're projected by us. And so what we have and what we do is we become alienated, if you will, when these things are not at, at, a, at a certain point of, of equilibrium. And so this is where you start to develop the, the conf material conflicts in history, which are necessary to finally reach this material utopia in due time. And so your thoughts now, until they've reached utopia, are such that they are things at a given point that will need to be overcome. They will need to be violently overcome if it's holding back that movement of, of, of nature and, and towards its goal. And so, so you have a radical well, alteration of meaning in history. Yeah, let's, let's just pause there. They have to be violently overcome. In other words, because it's, we're talking about a materialist uh, system um, and we consider human thought kind of epiphenomenal, just sort of the expression of a particular economic system or moment in time. Yes, that's right. Consequently, uh, what you end up with is a situation where the material conditions have to be altered before the consciousness can be altered. Yeah. And that means that it's got to be some kind of clash that brings about the next phase of, uh, you know, human or social evolution or social development. It, it's not yes. reasoned out. It's not, it's not uh, something that occurs deliberatively like, you know, Hegel would, uh, you know, still have room for, or actually it was very much a you know, part of what he's up to, uh, and definitely not, you know, dialectic in the way Plato and Aristotle thought about it. That, that's right. I mean, but you can have like, you have two, you know, two different strands of Hegel. You have the left wing and the right wing, but they, they, what, what the, the more conservative Hegelians tend to value highly institutions, countries, cultures, language. You could say Herder and a lot of those figures that were part of the retrieval, the romantic retrieval, um, and their, their notion of the significance of each culture and its language and its thoughts really came from that. And you can see even today you'll have um, – You'll have different, uh, even Christian writers that, that really see the contribution of Hegel to the significance of formed freedom. Um, that freedom is not this, this uh, uh, you know, arb arbitrary and autonomous kind of thing, but is actually something that is cultivated through these kind of manifestations of form that are given by the, you know, the absolute realizing itself, if you will. Then you have the kind of left wing. And in a sense, uh, from what I've been reading a lot of, is the, the kind of move to the new left, and Glenn could probably speak more on this, 
um, is something they often call by a couple of names in the stuff I've been reading. One is a Hegelianizing Marxism, which I think is a, is a thing, where this, this new left kind of is softening to some of what Hegel had to say, but still with, with uh, Marxian uh, impulse. Others will call it a more humanistic kind of Marxism because they return, they return to the early Marx, which was about freedom and human dignity um, in, their, in their reading of Marx, like Marcuse's reading of Marx. Um, but one of the things I think you do see is you start to move to from Marxism and Hegel and Kantian kind of liberalism is you start to see um, this uh, disenchantment with these grand narratives start to take place, these grand meaning narratives. And this is where you start to have um, the, the, this kind of the, the entry point for the woke kind of stuff. Um, we re we've talked many times about postmodernism's um, critique of these grand narratives, that, that um, what we have is these huge stories that basically absorb every little particular into them and demand everything get its meaning from the imposition of that grand story. And so one of the things that postmodernism wants to do is really show the way in which, and, and there is a, a little truth here, that each one of these things is contingent um, in most of their ideas and stuff are not grounded in some eternal foundation, if you will, but are grounded in humans and ideas and institutions and forcings and things like that. So they, are, they shouldn't have, in their mind, the kind of imperial force that they aim to have. Um, and so the early postmoderns of figures that um, someone like um, Richard Rorty would be a part of, if you could call him that, this pragmatic type, they saw this as a moment of liberation that was going to usher in this new stage in which everyone was basically going to have their narratives and get along, you know, like Marx's utopia, fishing and whatever else, you know, all day long. Um, didn't happen. And so what happens, especially in the U.S., well, it, it didn't. It did. Just to, just think about your typical family and the argument yeah. over whose turn it is to do the dishes. You know, that they, that they thought that, you know, this could be, you know, sort of conflict-free. You know, you could have yeah. your story, Tom, I could have my story, Glenn could have his story, and, and nobody ever has to do anything they don't want to do or sort of fit into any story that's, that's right. not their own sort of imagination. Story. You know, sort of throughout. <laughs> yeah, their own story. It's just nuts. It's just <laughs> <laughs> what, what, I, what I find interesting is when you, you go back to Hegel, um, it struck me how similar it is if you're putting it in a more orthodox-leaning theistic term. term um, it struck, strikes me as how similar it is to process theology and probably open theism as well. Yes. Yeah, those I guys so. definitely are, are definitely drawing from this stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think you can see with... with um, process theology in particular. Yeah, the, this dynamic of history and this the need, it, it's panentheism, this need for, for the deity to, because the deity is not complete and absolute, the doctrine of uh, classic Christian doctrine of society uh, is thrown out the door. So God's being is in becoming. That was famous language of, of that time. So God, yeah, I, God's being yeah. is realizing itself. Yeah, I actually have an, an acquaintance, somebody that I suppose I could call a friend, who's a, who's a leading open theist uh, theologian, guy named Tom Ord, and Tom is very very committed to the idea that um, time itself is not relative; it's absolute, and it's yeah. actually something that God is subject to. So God is yeah. um, consequently uh, as you know is in uh, contingent; his his being uh, is yes. uh, being sort of, you know, developed or worked out, you know, within the contingency of, of history. And also that means there are things that God just doesn't know. God doesn't know the future, according to Tom. Um, and notice, notice what's going on there. This is, kind of, this is kind of what I was trying to get at a few different times, is time or history is the large circle to which even God is an agent within, but just a bigger agent than the other, a contingent agent, but just a bigger one than the rest of us. This is that move out of classic views of transcendence to now bringing God within that circle. But in this case, the circle is not the summum bonum, the ultimate good, for example, or set of eternal forms. This circle is time. And time is absolute. God isn't. Mm -hmm. 
And so that brings God into the stage of interactive dynamic with creation. This is what the free willers always love because it makes God have to be interactive. In other words, classic Christian view, God can be fully active whether we're passive or active or not, right? Um, work out your your salvation with fear and trembling. What's the next thing? For it is God that works in you. And so, you know, or um, for those that received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons and daughters of God. Okay, we do the receiving. There's a human active act. But then he says, but it is not your will that generated it, nor the will of man or anything else, but your, you know, but God. Yeah, so this- they're... they're Mm-hmm. Yeah, this 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 can actually work out in some 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 uh, interesting ways uh, at the level of folk mm-hmm. theology. So you know, sometimes yeah. you'll come across uh, people who say something you say something that sounds really pious, but when you think yeah. about it, you're like it's tremendously sort of uh, it's even blasphemous. Like uh, the statement I've heard many times: God does nothing but an answer to prayer. Now, maybe God, in His ordering of things, prompts you to pray so that He he can answer your prayer. Maybe that's one way to mm-hmm. redeem that statement. But the idea that God is just sort of sitting around all day waiting for us to ask him to do things, you know, because yeah. our relationship with him is on equal terms. You know, there's, we have a genuine relationship, you know, God doesn't do anything yeah. that, that I've not asked him to do. Well, you know, God made the world without my asking, you know, <laughs> yeah. or maybe, maybe for these people that didn't happen. <laughs> Well, it's interesting because this, in theology in particular, you have the, you, you see this also with feminist theology and liberation theologies, is they love this move to, to, turn, to turn the relationship, the, the creature's relation to God to not one of absolute dependence. I mean, you can see with feminism, if creation, the female, is dependent on creator, the male, then it means that they have no being or anything else apart from, I mean, this is how, the, this is their kind of twisted thinking um, that that underwrites a certain kind of patriarchy and everything else. So they want basically a, a more feminized view in which God is dynamically, that God is the spirit that fits the earth or creation, which is the glove, right? So God needs the glove, the dress, if you will, in order to be God. Um, and so and so this is that move towards God basically being superior to, bigger than, the creation, but needing the creation in order to manifest and realize himself. So all of a sudden, we're back to paganism where God needs the creation to be God. And and what that does is that puts a burden on creation that the gospel meant to liberate us from. The liberation of the gospel was to free us from having to basically assuage the gods um, that we created in our idolatry and the religious enslavement that we got tied into by doing that. So Christianity frees us and says, we, this is all gift all the way down, and God doesn't need you to be God, and God doesn't create to put the burden on you to realize God, God's being. God is complete and everything else. That gives us the freedom of having to basically be servants of God in, rather than friends, if you will. Um, in that kind of in that kind of thinking, and so Hegel, panentheism, femini- you know, feminized theology and and liberation theologies put a huge burden on the creature now to have to be the agent of realizing God's purposes in history, right? And this purpose of liberation, of course, is undoing the patriarchy for the feminist, and it's undoing anything that is classically Christian for the liberation theologian. Um, and, and uh, all in the name of a higher new humanity. And the engine drive is the human being's moral agency, being active in the world, changing it rather than understanding it. And so now you have a church where, you know, again, committed to social justice. We should be committed to social justice properly understood. Um, that belongs to Christianity, the term itself. It grew out of uh, Christian moral teaching. That does not belong to the left. <laughs> that, that, that does not arise in it. Um, but this whole, this whole commitment of the church to a, to a completely um, imminent frame through which their actions are going to usher in this new, new state of humanity um, now, is not Christian. <laughs> one of the – I think it's you know, a good thing for us to kind of uh, – help our, our listeners pick up on some um, maybe ways of thinking and talking that don't use the terms that we're using right at the moment, but are dependent yeah. upon these ways of thinking, maybe even unconsciously. So there's a yeah. strong 
you know, we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, when we, uh, you know, hear people, just, you know, talk about contextual theology, for example. Yeah. Um, contextual theology, um, in one sense, is, uh, you know, irrefutable. I mean, you, you've got to learn a language if you're going to minister in a country. <laughs> so yeah, you got to right. learn kind of the context. You know, it's, good, it's a good idea to know a little bit about the customs and, and so forth. But mm-hmm. contextual theology uh, can be so embedded in the imminent, you know, wh- the way it th- can sort of conce- conceives of God's uh, work in the world that uh, there's uh, apparently no way of, uh, you know, even talking about uh, transcendence in the way that we try to promote on this show. You know, there's, it's just like, yeah. that's just uh, because uh, they beg the question, uh, that's just uh, you and me, bunch of white guys imposing our deceptive sort of framework on other people rather than actually helping them to sort of look outside uh, to something that's outside of us as well, that's beyond us. That's right. I mean, if, if there's any theology that actually um, that actually pulls the rug under a white supremacist view of, of Christianity, it's the proper view of transcendence. <laughs> um, it's that the particular creaturely form is not, in any sense of the word, the full reality. And what they do in attempt to alleviate that straw man is create a particular contextualized idol in its place in order to Again, this is this is what ends up happening when con- any creaturely formed context becomes determinative of the transcendent. And see, this is the in- this is what Christianity was was able to to move brilliantly, even though it had its its tensions from the Hel- from from the the Hebraic into the Hellenic, and not in such a way that it imprisoned itself. In, in either of those, but, but there is this full-fledged communication of that, the, the stuff that came through the Hebraic into the Hellenic in which it continued to purge those parts that were inconsistent with it and develop those parts that helped communicate it fuller. And that became the groundwork for the church to talk about ways in which we can communicate contextually. We can use language and customs and, and different things but not in a way that it gets imprisoned into that kind of that kind of thinking. Look, I'm all for being exposed by the truth of Christianity for those idols that I have or my culture has or the church in my time. I I think the heart of Christianity is being uprooted from any false gods and any fallen securities and replaced with 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 the truth. Um and I I think that's that's what you're not going to get from these altered theologies because they they have turned the creaturely and the contingent as a replacement of 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 the classical transcendent. I mean that's a that's a you know that's a big thing to unpack. But um let me take it a little different direction but I know we're going to be uh, wrapping up very soon but when um especially in the US you had kind of in the academic world you had this breakdown of these grand narratives and you had the postmodern play for a while. Um, all of a sudden, the postmodern took on a seriousness, and we've talked about this in other other shows as well, where it no longer was happy with play. Um, but you really saw an uptick, especially in the U.S., with this moving out of the academy into the into the popular culture, right around the time that basically uh, I think the, the 2008 when you had the economic crisis. Because basically, once the grand narratives that gave us meaning in society were basically um, looked at very negatively, Christianity increasing losing its kind of place in, in, on the hold of, of, of the moral fabric of society, um, and these other grand liberal narratives that were moving endlessly toward pro, uh, progress, um, that disenchantment at least was, was, if nothing filled it, people thought, okay, well, I have a wealthy future and I have, you know, I'm going to be able to basically indulge myself. Well, when the economic crash happens, we don't have that anymore, right? So now you have a whole generation who doesn't have the grand narrative. They don't have the, the, the substitute, you know, um, bread alone. Um, so now what? 
And then these things flood that vacuum, these kind of wokeism and, and um, you know, uh, radical, radically altered postmodernism that adopts a lot of the new left into this new, new metaphysic, if you will, and new, new uh, history of meaning in which well, yeah, things it's, it's, now... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's as though we can't get away from having a meta-narrative. We've got to have a meta-narrative. Yeah. The question is, is whether or not it's the correct or the true story, not whether we can have one or not. I think this is where um, all this stuff just is evidently, uh, you know, unworkable. you got to have, getting back to my little illustration of, of whose turn is it to do the dishes tonight, <laughs> there's always yeah. going to be stuff that you're required to do that you don't want to do if this thing is going to work. If we're going to live with each other, there are going to be things that I get to do that maybe you want to do, but you can't do for one reason or another. There are going to be things that you can do that I can't do for one reason or another. How do we make sense of that? Uh, Is it just power games? Uh, You know, is nature really just Play-Doh? I mean, you do have a uterus and I don't, I can't be a mother <laughs> unless we play some kind of goofy language game, which we're birthing. Apparently, you can't be a birthing. Yeah. What do they call it? <laughs> Bir- birthing person. <laughs> yeah. Which apparently no. is, is actually something people are willing to do. I, I listened to something on Quillette here uh, last week that was uh, really disturbing, but also fascinating in a sort of disturbing way. And there's this uh, sort of, you know, if, if there was any group of people that you would think would be able to keep all this stuff sorted out, it would be, you know, midwives. <laughs> but apparently <laughs> there's some of the worst uh, people out there when it comes to this sort of gender language nonsense. Uh, and they, are, well, vi- they have a very short uh, sort of uh, distance between uh, being really sweet, nice little ladies and being woke, uh, you know, sort of mobs <laughs> just amazing stuff into this, by the way in medical schools yeah. where students are calling out professors for referring to people who are pregnant as women right yeah i saw that yeah you know, it's uh, so, sick you know, what, you know what what i'm struck with you know when you're saying that you have to have a meta narrative because who does the dishes what i'm struck by is how close this is to ancient paganism mm. You know, if you are in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was really remarkably tolerant religiously. And that's because they were polytheistic. They could fully accept that different people have different sets of gods and we just incorporate all of them into the pantheon. Just make sure you burn incense to the emperor and everything's fine. You know, so in a sense, it was an empire that had multiple meta narratives in one sense, but there was still this sort of unifying factor. You... You salute the emperor, you pay your taxes, you support the military, or we will stomp you into the dirt. Yeah, yeah. There, you know, so there is, there is an overarching something there, although it's not a meta narrative in the normal sense of the word. They let people have their own stories, which is one of the reasons why, in a lot of ways, I've, you know, I argued since the book Why You Think the Way You Do that when you take Christianity out of Western culture, all you're left with is Rome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and functionally, what we've got now is a whole bunch of competing narratives enforced by a political hierarchy that claims to have a monopoly on force that yeah. is willing to enforce certain kinds of decrees. But beyond that, they'll let you sort of pursue your own thing however you want to do it. I mean, in a lot of ways, we're, we're back to Rome. And there's this this interesting thing that goes on with that. I mean, I, I, there's something I've been probing a lot of, though, is this this tendency of of uh, especially now in history. But I, I, you could really argue that case even even with the most extreme examples of national socialism or, or you know uh, Stalinism. Um, is that you have something that was they were very aware of in the academic world was a a sort of a relative perspective being made absolute, if you will. Although I do think they really believe, started to believe the the kind of the grand narratives they were spinning. Um, but one of the things that that I think you you had going on there is this turn to this kind of totalitarian tyranny to stifle any kind of dissent. 
um, that, that we're starting to see again with the, with the woke crowd and the, and the kind of, yeah, I mean, we're seeing in the U.S. now, uh, left and right, that anything that, dis- it, it, you know, I mean, one could make an argument right now that the pressures they're putting on people maybe for vaccinations or, or stuff are, 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 are of this nature of trying to increase that conformity. Because what dissent does um, is it, it basically exposes the contingency of the power that needs to be absolute in everyone's mind. And so you can't have alternative narratives that question the absolute interpretation. I mean, look, look at the way big tech is functioning to silence any viewpoints that challenge the kind of, you know, the, the, the main globalist interpretation of things, right? So anything that challenges it is a threat, right? Even if it's this little thread that you happen to post on your Facebook to your 20, 30, or a couple hundred friends or whatever, a couple thousand. I mean, the, the extreme measures they go to, for me, reveals how, on an existential level, contingent they realize their viewpoint is, and the only way to keep it from being removed or dismantled or challenged is to stifle all opposition. And this is why I think the sanctity of truth is the, I think, step one, you know, I mean, I, I think Rod Dreher tried to do a book around that off of, um, off of Solzhenitsyn's idea, you know, of, of it was not by know, us. yes, but to say, I mean, the thing, I mean, it goes, I think, to the heart, I, I think, I mean, what, what is the Genesis account, but, but, but actually, you know, Satan weaving the, this lie, the father of lies that, that makes challenges kind of the, the divine interpretation of things, right? And then creates an, an alternate. Um, and, I, and I think this shows the fragility of that alternate. I mean, these human narratives become basically the tool of those that, that can have, you know, astronomical amounts of power, but there is, there is this increased temptation with that gets ripped out of any kind of Christian view, view of transcendence and limits to where basically all humans can be forced to that interpretation of what's good for everybody once it takes root. Yeah, that's, that's probably a good place to, to bring us into it for a landing here. I think uh, um, if we're not going to have the true God who transcends and who is not threatened at all by our contingent efforts, then we're going to substitute some idol that is contingent and uh, is willing to uh, get pretty t- brutal. Anyway, uh, uh, as, we, as we wrap up, is there anything you wanted to say, uh, Glenn, uh, kind of a, a, sort of as a parting thought? Oh, there were a boatload of things that went by so fast that I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't quite dive in on them, but I think I'll... <laughs> Well, I'll save them for another time. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, we should probably wrap up. I, I do need to say a couple of things before we do, um, having to do with uh, announcements and so forth. So uh, we are going to be doing a live show at the Fight, Laugh, Feast uh, conference. Uh, I think it's going to be in the Nashville area, but I think it's actually in Lebanon, Tennessee. But uh, we'll be there, and we're going to be uh, there uh, doing a show with our friend George Grant, and we're looking forward to that. So we'll be one of the, I guess, quote, breakout sessions. Um, they t- they're telling me that we should expect maybe 500 to 1,000 people just f- at ours. So it's going to be a lot of fun to do a show in front of a, a live studio audience <laughs> like that. But if you are uh, kind of on the fence about whether or not to go to this uh, Fight, Laugh, Feast conference, uh, you probably should go <laughs> because it's going to be a great time. There's going to be some great speakers. You know, we got everybody from Vodibachum to Doug to Napple there, and it's just going to be a lot of fun. And we'd love to, we'd love to meet you. And uh, related to that, but not on the same, uh, you know, sort of uh, pl- or in the same place, we, we're, we're working at pulling together our uh, Pacific Northwest uh, tour. And uh, so we're uh, looking at, at, at right now perhaps as many as four different locations that will be uh, – uh, doing shows here in the Pacific Northwest, in the Portland area, in the Moscow area, and then a couple of places in the Seattle area. So anyway, that's going to be the last few days of October and the first few days of November. But that's 
uh, coming up. I guess one last thing to just say as we wrap up, we do appreciate the support that we receive. We get communication, uh, we get texts, we get emails from folks all the time, and we're glad for those. Uh, We're also glad that many people support us financially. And uh, so that does help because there are costs to producing the show and all of those gifts go to those costs. We don't take any money uh, for even our beer. (laughs) 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 So, so thank you very much. And uh, if you've not uh, rated us on iTunes or wherever you listen to us, please do. Uh, I'm told by the people who know how this stuff works, that it helps. Anyway, with those things in mind, thanks again for listening to the Theology Podcast, and we'll, we'll get together with you again, uh, hopefully real soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.